0: Welcome to the Siskins Business Essentials Podcast, where I sit down with lawyers from Siskins Business Division to discuss current issues, challenges, and opportunities affecting our clients. My name is Chris and I'm a labor and employment lawyer practicing on the management side, primarily dealing in arbitrations, occupational health and safety, WSIB and human rights. And most of my clients are in the manufacturing, broader public sector, and healthcare as well. And today I'm talking with Michael Weinberger, my colleague over in the business and technology group. And Michael, I just want to ask you, what types of different clients do you generally help out and and what do you do in your practice? Thanks, Chris. So
1: my practice generally focuses around three different areas. So firstly, I deal a lot with uh, franchising businesses from the franchisor side. Secondly, I and starting up with Peter Dillon and my other business colleagues, a tech startup group. And lastly, I also work in the privacy department, which helps businesses make sure they respect privacy regulations in Canada. And secondly, if they are victim of say a cybersecurity incident, to make sure that notification requirements are are followed. We do that as uh, breach coaches.
0: So how how often does that come up? Is that is that just all the time these days? Good question. So
1: unfortunately, it's becoming more and more occurring in not just large businesses, but small to medium-sized businesses. So what hackers and cybersecurity rogues have decided is that if they focus on smaller to medium-sized businesses that are flush in cash, they're more likely to simply pay out a ransomware attack than they are than, say, a large company.
0: So right now, I mean, we're recording this kind of in, in, in the midst of this COVID pandemic. And so,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, it's a challenging and delicate business environment, let's say. So the significant government intervention all over the place, the supply chain interruptions, you know, obviously I'm dealing with employers who are, who are working with their employees, it's extremely challenging. Are we seeing an increase in kind of opportunistic attacks that are going on, or is it pretty much just business as usual?
1: No, most definitely. Uh, Hackers
0: have been using COVID as a
1: front to invade company uh, software and infrastructure. So what do they do? What do they do is they send an email, for example, saying we are the following government representative. Please click on this link. Congratulations, your company has been uh, selected to receive a government grant or they'll give out other uh, emails for business. One other thing that they will do is they will use an urgent situation such as COVID-19 to socially manipulate employees in a firm into transferring money out of a company. So this is an example of business uh, business email compromise. Let's assume that your business is being overwatched by an attacker. What they do is they have access to incoming mail and outgoing mail. So one potential of this is they will send an email from the CEO's email address to someone in payroll and the email will say, Dear Bob from payroll, it's me, the CEO. I need you to transfer $1 million to the following bank account urgently so that we can secure this COVID-19 funding.
0: Wow, do they do they come to you kind of while this attack is in the process of happening, or is or is is your practice mostly forensic and trying to prevent the next one?
1: So good question. Our practice focuses on the preparation and the mer- remediation. So we go the whole wheel, the whole life cycle of the attack. But what? Happens is, say a business has an attack. they come to us and as breach coaches, we guide them through the process of a cybersecurity attack. We put them in touch with the proper forensics individuals, we put them in touch with the proper service providers to make sure that they can mediate their cybersecurity issue. Now the reason it's important to have a lawyer on these kind of events is because when the lawyer becomes an integral part of the remediation, all of the documents are protected by solicitor client privilege. This lowers the risk that when a company is being sued, they will have to give over documents to authorities and potential plaintiff side lawyers.
0: What other types of, I guess, challenges, or are you seeing other challenges that are coming up right now from clients that are coming to you that are, you know, that you're seeing now that you might not normally see? With, uh, with my practice, because employees or employers rather are, you know, facing, for example, cash flow problems, they don't necessarily have the orders to fulfill. And so the the work isn't necessarily there. So they're faced with these tough questions of are we going to lay off our workers? Are we going to furlough them with government funding? Are we going to send people home that that fail temperature testing that we've just implemented? There's a whole bunch of new issues that, you know, if you'd sat me down six months ago, I never would have imagined be dealing with. And so you've just given a great example of a situation where opportunistic individuals are taking advantage of this pandemic and carrying out attacks on your clients. Are, are you hearing anything else from your clients, whether in, in privacy or other areas that, that are posing challenges that are kind of unique to this time?
1: Yes. So one of the things that we have always seen coming down the pipeline was the not just logistical problem, but the privacy and cybersecurity problem of remote working. So for a long time now, we knew that our society as a whole has been moving to more working from home not coming to the office as much. But with COVID-19, we've seen, you know, it's gone from something to look at to an immediate must. And so one of the things we've had to work with is understanding what systems are secure, what uh, policies do we have to put in place to make sure businesses and their employees are taking the necessary protections for personal information, for example. One more question is, hey,
0: is Zoom
1: secure? Right? We've all seen in the news issues like Zoom bombing.
0: Can you answer the question? Is Zoom secure? Zoom
1: is not as secure as other options. In fact, I believe Siskins has taken the position that we'd rather not use Zoom. The better alternative would be to use, say, for example, a professional email host like Outlook.com to send your emails as opposed to using Zoom.
0: So one of the things that's affecting, you know, a number of our clients is, is the government restrictions. Cause I mean, entire workplaces are shuttering and I mean, that's not unique to, to labor and employment clients. It's going to be everyone. Are, are your clients seeing an impact or are, are your clients being differentially impacted by, uh, by the types of government restrictions and regulations that we're seeing coming out right now?
1: So, so shifting more to, from away from the cybersecurity side to the franchise side, we've seen that uh, franchise businesses have been differentially impacted. So for example, let's assume that I own a cleaning franchise. This COVID-19 has brought government challenges, but also uh, business opportunities. But more specifically, let's say you own a restaurant franchise, right? Government impositions have made it such that dining in is no longer a possibility. So you have to work a lot around the regulations. You have to make sure that you have the right kind of processes to give takeout, for example. And you have to make sure that franchisors and franchisees are able to use common sense, work within a framework of understanding and respect for each other so that they can ultimately respect government law and hopefully minimize business downturn.
0: It's interesting because when you're talking about the the franchisees and the franchisors kind of working from a position of of respect with each other, one of the things I tell clients a lot is ultimately if if the core business objectives are to increase productivity and lower litigation risk, then the the solution to both of those often isn't necessarily being you know hyper concerned with the legal obligations and legal responsibilities. Obviously, everyone needs to know those and keep those in mind and comply with them. But it's really focusing on the more human resources end of it and treating everyone with dignity, respect, making them feel like they're part of a team. So that even you know, when you communicate bad news, they at least you know, don't feel that it's unfair or capricious or what have you. And, and they're less likely to want to litigate because they're, they're angry and want to take it out on you. Do you see similar dynamics in the franchise or franchisee relationship?
1: Yes, most definitely. If you have a precarious relationship between franchisees and franchisors and one party wants to strictly impose rules such as, say, for example, the franchisor that is not willing to accept lower payments, it can create a, an unprofitable environment and it can damage the reputation of the franchisor long term, which in turn reflect which in turn will reflect upon the possibility of the franchise court. One thing I'd like to also mention is it's not just between that idea of respect and getting along isn't limited to only businesses. They did a study in the United States that found doctors that spend at least 10 minutes with each patient were far less likely to be sued. And the researchers concluded that's because people don't wanna sue people they like. Absolutely. If you have a good working relationship with somebody, the first thing you're gonna look to is not the courthouse, but you're gonna sit down, mediate something, figure it out, brainstorm, and hopefully you can come up with something even better.
0: Absolutely. Out of curiosity, we've seen such a dynamic shift in operations, like especially when you're talking about food service, for example. And people have had to, well, I mean, at this point, the dining rooms are still closed. And so if you can do takeout, fantastic. Uh, And if you can do delivery, okay. In this situation where people have had to be extremely dynamic in in how they're delivering services, are you seeing, who's driving that? Are are, are the franchisees largely left to themselves to figure that out? Do they talk to each other? Or are they getting direction from the franchise? Or, you know, how's that working?
1: So... What are the benefits of joining a franchise system as opposed to opening up your own business is that you're able to leverage the resources of a franchisor and the resources of other franchisee, meaning collectively you have a greater network and a greater set of resources to help go through these times of thin in order to make it to those times of thick. So. What we've been seeing so far is uh, franchisors have, for the most part, been acting pretty reasonably. They've started kind of, they started with the low hanging fruit. They said, don't worry, you can skip this payment. Don't worry, you, you can reduce your advertising, uh, your mandatory advertising fees. We get to really see, though, what's going to happen when tougher decisions have to be made.
0: You know, if we if we start to look out and if we look kind of three months, six months, nine months out, you know, a couple of things, if we if we stick on, let's say service delivery, anything that involves an enclosed space, anything that involves a dining room, it wouldn't surprise me if we see, you know, limits on how many patrons can be in a place at any given time, even once the dining rooms are open again. All of which is gonna negatively affect profit, which in turn I, I have to imagine is going to add some level of strain to the franchise or franchisee relationships. What do you see, and I mean, we're just spitballing, but but what do you see happening there? Do you see that, that franchisors are, are, are just going to have to kind of share in that pain? Are we going to see some sort of government intervention to limit their kind of strict reliance on their contractual rights? What do you think?
1: I think as opposed to phrasing it into sharing pain or to sacrificing, I think better would be to phrase it in the sense of making sure we use common sense and making sure that franchisors and franchisees, instead of pointing to and following the law to the the letter, we'd have to focus more on practicality and making sure that that is kind of the higher goal. If we set our priorities as being, how can we maintain profitability? How can we do so practically without having to get bogged down in, in. What does subsection two of subparagraph three say? That makes a lot of
0: sense. Hopefully. So if we look at, you know, what do we think things are actually going to look like in the next, you know, six, nine months if we see sort of some level of of an easing of restrictions, but not a complete, you know, I don't imagine that the government will just walk away overnight from the restrictions that are in place.
1: Yeah. So if I if I had to look into a crystal ball and say what I see. I think it's not possible to put the genie back into the bottle. And what I mean by that is businesses, employers, employees, they'll have to say, hey, working from home, it's not that bad. Hey, using uh, Skype, do our meetings, it's not that bad. I think it'll become a lot more socially acceptable to have remote working workforces. And I don't see a total return to what we had before.
0: And so, as we move into that, if we if we get a more dispersed workforce, which which has has positives as well. I mean, if the employees are productive at home, and you can have less physical space in your office, fantastic, right? Then then from a from an information security point of view, and from a privacy point of view, you know, is there any is there anything new that comes out of that, or are we just going to see a ramping up and a you know g- getting where we probably should have been? From an information security point of view years ago we're just going to get there quicker because the impetus is now there or are there any new procedures and policies that are going to need to be put in place that that we might not have thought of years ago
1: yeah so we're going to definitely need uh, a new set of legal tools to make sure that a remote workforce is safe from a cybersecurity perspective so for example training your workforce on how to properly use this secure wi-fi network so when you sign up to when you're working remotely from starbucks understand that there's a risk when you're using that free public wi-fi or for example making sure to that employees use a clean desk policy when working at home or for example making sure that employees making sure that employees again practice proper cyber hygiene now that's not new but rather we're gonna have to reinforce these ideas much more than we have in
0: the past. Yeah. And what's, I mean, what's, I find so interesting about this is if we, we can assume with some level of certainty that there's going to be an increase in the number of people that are working remotely, don't know what the number is. Could be 1%, could be 50%, who knows? But there's going to be some level of increase. What I'm intrigued by, because I don't know what's going to happen, is most of the legislative obligations that are on our clients right now, that are on employers, Employment Standards Act, Occupational Health and Safety Act, Human Rights Code, what have you, they're based on a system, on a model that's 100 years old and you know comes out of manufacturing. They'll take it for granted that there's a workplace that isn't your house yes. and that it's separate from it. And yeah, you know, we've been doing working from home for for 20 years, if no longer. And it's always involved kind of trying to, to fit that round peg into the square hole. I mean, if you're being really, really diligent in detail about it, you'll have an occupational health and safety plan in a workplace violence assessment for the worker's home office, you'll have them locking their files away. And you'll, you'll have all these procedures in place. But, but always, it seemed to be kind of strange to take these existing pieces of legislation or the, or the um, you know, Employment Standards Act, where most of these minimum standards, and it's the employer's obligation to ensure that they are enforced, are predicated on the assumption the supervisor's right there watching the employee. And so that, like what I'm really intrigued by is if this becomes a widespread societal change, that legislation's gonna have to change. Yes, yes. And I don't know what it'll look like 10 years from now. Well, Michael, thank you. Uh, Thanks very much. Is there anything else that you wanna talk about?
1: No, I think that's good. I just like to encourage everyone to uh, practice safe cyber hygiene and safe physical hygiene. Make sure you wash your hands, but also you change your password, you use strong passwords, and that you avoid, for example, password logs um, that keep all your passwords saying Google Chrome. Those are, uh, those are really easy to break.
0: Oh, I, I live with like, those are, those are my bread and butter. I don't remember all my passwords. Yeah, you
1: know, I'm sure they have your your credit card, your debit card, your social security number. Uh, watch
0: out. What about when my iPhone asks to remember my password? Am I supposed to say no every time? Or is it, or is it okay? Because it uses my thumbprint to actually put it in?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I'd love to know the answer. But I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That That's for the next time. Yeah. Well, if any of our uh, listeners have any questions, you can always check out Siskins' website at www.siskins.com or Siskins on social media, which is at Siskins underscore LLP. My name is Chris Seidel, and I want to thank you very much for joining Michael Weinberger and I as we discuss the business essentials of privacy and business law during COVID-19.